Welcome to the Rimfire Tactical Podcast. This is your host, Chris, from rimfiretactical.com, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome to episode 33, guys. What can I say? It is another quarantine episode, if you will. Uh, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but uh, at the time it's being recorded, we are still in a quarantine status, if you will. Uh, And I I say that jokingly, but uh, thankfully, my family, we are not being quarantined. Uh, But this is a point in time where there is a lot of things happening with COVID-19, the coronavirus, if you will, um, all around, not just you know my area in the U.S., but all around the world. And man, I'm telling you, it's, uh, it's interesting how something that I've never even heard of and, and most of the people that, from what I understand, it really wasn't even a thing that was being talked about until I guess, um, maybe, maybe six weeks ago. And, uh, you know, even when it it first started being reported, at least the little bit that I'd heard about it, uh, that was something that was happening and, you know, it was overseas and, um, boy, it has certainly spread and spread quickly, it seems. So, yeah, I tend to make a lot of things, but I trust me, I do understand how how uh, impactful it has been on the world in general. And, you know, my biggest thing, my, my biggest hope and prayer for all you guys that are listening is to please be safe, stay home if you can. If you're deemed an essential worker, uh, as uh, they're using that term a lot right now, and you're going to be somebody that does, you know, have to go to work, Please be safe. You know, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, practice the social distancing, uh, and not the one that we would normally talk about on this podcast, where you know we're talking about shooting as far as we can with a, a rimfire. But uh, wow, it's just such a uh, it's such a, a scary thing that something so um, it, minute, not insignificant, but minute, can can wreak havoc like it has been. But uh, today's episode, it's going to be a little different. Uh, it's going to be a little different because um, I'm going to cover a topic that uh, one of the members of the Rimfire Tactical Facebook group asked if I would do a podcast about this. And um, it's, not, it's not something that I have spent as much time on, but... I'm going to share some anyway, uh, just because, hey, a guy named Joe Putnam, he asked for it. Actually, I think I just messed up your name. Uh, I said Joe. It's actually Josh. That's what happens when I haven't drank enough coffee in the morning. It's Josh Putman, not Putnam. So, sorry about that. Um, but Josh's post in the Rimfire Tactical Facebook group, which by the way, if you haven't been over to the Rimfire Tactical Facebook group, I would highly encourage you to go. Head on over there. It's a great group, about 6,000 members or so, and you know, lots of conversation about all different types of Rimfires, not just the those of the tactical nature or tactical look. And, you know, 
whether you've got questions about how uh, specific you know matches work and you're looking to maybe get started in shooting something like you know maybe it's NRL 22 or uh, the Mars series mini clinic rimfire series I believe is what Mars stands for or steel challenge whatever type of uh, competition you're looking uh, to shoot I think you'll you'll be very impressed by the um, shooters that are there as a huge knowledge base and get lots of information. Um, in addition to the Rimfire Tactical Facebook group, you can head over to rimfiretactical.com where you can um, sign up for the newsletter and uh, you'll get updated when there's new blog posts, updates to the website, uh, any merchandise that gets put up there, um, which that's not a focus, but we've had a lot of requests for it. At some point, that will probably happen um, to get no updated on the progress of the uh, forum that will be starting very soon. And, you know, in general, it's just a way to keep in touch. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram. Uh, it's Rimfire Tactical on Instagram. I will tell you, there's another Rimfire Tactical that is also on Instagram. Um, the way that you can tell the difference between the two, because I don't know how to get, you know, how to keep somebody else from using the same Instagram handle. Um, but the way that you can tell the difference between the two is one, the Rimfire Tactical Instagram that is ours has pictures of some voodoo rifles along with several others and is linked to the Rimfire Tactical um, podcast Facebook page while the other Rimfire Tactical uh, just has a handful of pictures of uh, all on shoots rifles. So not sure. Maybe it's somebody that works at on shoots. Just not real sure. But in either case, you know, that's the case. Uh, you can follow us there on Instagram and, um, you know, anyway, if you have thoughts on a podcast, comments, feedback, things like that, feel free to reach out to us through any of those and, uh, you'll get us. But Josh had asked, he says, is there any thought on doing an episode of the podcast about vintage rifles? I have a Winchester Model 75 from 1941, and my son has a Savage Stevens Model 34 from 1952. How often do you see these matches, or see these rifles at matches, if ever? And you know, I thought about it when I saw that post, and Josh has a point. There are literally tons of those vintage rifles out there, and not just the ones he's talking about, um, but tons of others as well. And a lot of those vintage rifles, those old school guns, if you will, are exceptional shooters. I mean, just absolute hammers. What's interesting about them is a lot of those older rifles were single shots. Not all, of course, like the Winchester 75, it's a repeater. And, um, you know, there's there's a ton of them. And I'm sorry, I don't know the, the Savage Stevens Model 34 um, 
I, I just don't know that model. I'll look it up here in just a second, but it's been my experience that a lot of the older model uh, rifles that are out there, the only downside I've ever seen to them, and this is certainly not a, uh, it's certainly not the case for all of them. So please don't think that's what I'm saying. But it's been my experience when you come across a lot of the older rifles in particular. Um, and, and I talk about rifles, of course, on the podcast more than I do um, handguns just because I shoot rifles more. And consequently, I, I shoot them better. I won't say I shoot them great, but I shoot them better. Um, but the thing about a lot of the vintage rifles that I come across, usually they fall into, I guess you could say three categories. I was going to originally say two, but you know, to be fair, let's call it three. The first one is unfortunately the ones that I see the most of. And these are probably my favorite for one main reason. Uh, that first category would be the ones that are well used. And when I say well used, I mean they have been used. The blooming is nearly gone. The wood is uh, in rough shape. It's, you know, it's very obvious that that gun has been carried and shot a lot. And the reason that I have such a soft spot for those is because what's interesting about modern rifles that you find is you don't find a lot of them that have been used and used and used. And I'm totally guilty of this. Um, and I would venture a guess that several listeners are as well. We tend to be more um, prone to owning lots and lots of different rifles and rotating them, if you will, or buying them and you know putting them in the safe instead of having one rifle and using it and being great with it. And I think about a vintage rifle that uh, my father has that actually belonged to my great, see, my great grandfather, I guess it is. It's a Remington Model 41. Uh, I believe they call it the, I can't remember if they call it the Target Master or the Match Master. I believe it's the Target Master. And I guess it's the precursor to the Remington 541. Uh, the 541, of course, uh, certainly not what you'd call an antique rifle or a vintage rifle, but it's a great bolt-action rifle that Remington made uh, really up until the, I think the late 90s or maybe early 2000s. And uh, magazine-fed, five-round plastic magazine made it in a, um, both a sporter model as well as a heavy barrel model. And uh, growing up, I thought those things were just amazing. Uh, couldn't believe when my father bought 
the sporter model because at the time I thought what he paid for that rimfire rifle was crazy. It was as much as a centerfire rifle. And it was also a lot different to me because it was a full-size rifle. I mean, it weighed as much as the Remington Model 700 mountain rifle that I deer hunted with. And I just couldn't understand why you would do that with a 22 because, let's face it, you know, 22s, <laughs> when I was growing up, they were something fun to play with and squirrel hunt with, but that was about the extent of it. So they were always trim, lightweight little rifles. Um, and then later, Dad bought a heavy barrel, and I thought that was even crazier. But the Model 41 that belonged to my great-great-grandfather, or great-grandfather, I guess it is, it's a single shot, uh, open sights, of course. And um, that rifle was one that he used for squirrel hunting, for rabbit hunting. To, he carried it um, when he and, I guess, his brothers would go out coon hunting at night. Um, they had coon dogs, and they would, uh, from what, from the stories I've been told, of course, I, I never had the chance to, never had the pleasure of meeting him. But from what I understand, he and his brothers and, and some of his other family members, they hunted, uh, they coon hunted any chance and every chance they could. So they were out a lot, almost every night. Well, that rifle, um, it's still in great condition for its age. It really is. But like I said, the bluing's nearly gone. The, uh, the marks on the wood, even though they took really good care of it, you can still tell that gun's been used. And like I said, that's been my experience with most of the vintage rifles that I come across. Sorry, I had to get some coffee. So, um, you know, those, those older rifles, because so many of them are or have been used and, and show signs of use, it's interesting because I think what happens with a lot of folks is they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily drawn to those guns because they look rough. Um, a lot of those rifles were not taken very good care of. And when I'm saying not taken very good care of, I'm talking, you know, for, from the looks of it on that 41, that was my great grandfather's from the looks of that one. Yes. Uh, when, when they were out coon hunting and, you know, they got rained on in the middle of the night or whatever, it looks like when they got back to the house, it, it you can tell they've, they wiped it down, they oiled it, um, things like that. But a lot of those rifles, that doesn't appear to be the case. And uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've come across older 22s in gun shops and pawn shops that could probably be cleaned up and restored and look great, but it would take either a, a lot of work on, you know, whoever bought them. It'd take a lot of work on their part, re them. Um, 
sanding, staining the stock. Um, and you can do, you know, get it back to a, a much better look, but it's never going to be perfect because a uh, majority of the ones I come across are actually, um, they're rusted, pitted. There's tons of corrosion in the barrels. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I have seen uh, the rifles with a broken stock that has been put back together. I actually saw one not that long ago. It had been put back together. It was broken in the wrist. And they had, from what I could tell, used... <laughs> I'm not really sure. Some sort of wood filler. It actually looked more like Bondo that you would repair a car with. But they had done some of that. Then they ran a bolt, a literal bolt, through it. So on the left side, uh, they had the head of the bolt on the right side where it would fit in the palm of your hand if you're a right-hand shooter. And then the, uh, the nut for the bolt was on the left side. So literally when you would, would shoulder the rifle, your fingers from your right hand would have to sp have to part because it was a big bolt. It was, uh, nah, and I'm terrible in sizes. I'm guessing it's maybe a, uh, three eighths of an uh, inch bolt, something like that. But I don't know. Like I said, I'm terrible on those things. So could have been bigger than that. Could have been smaller, but, um, uh, and then what they had, had done to finish it off, because, hey, you know, that wasn't enough. Uh, they had taken um, duct tape and had wrapped it. And apparently it had been like that for a long time, because that silver duct tape was nearly black. And it was worn uh, enough, or had been used enough like that, that the bolt, uh, the head of the bolt, as well as the nut, the corners on those were actually cutting through the duct tape. But anyway, enough about that. Um, but, but that's, like I said, those vintage rifles, I see them fall into those three categories. The first one is the ones that have been you know, used and used and used a lot. But, you know, they show the signs of use and you know, the reality is a lot of people tend to avoid them. I think because they're not sure of how well those guns would shoot or uh, in some cases, if they'll even shoot because something I've also come across quite a bit is the rifles, you know, they show their age, but you know, everything else about them is fine. But there's a broken part somewhere. Uh, maybe the safety's broke. Maybe that's a firing pin that's broke. Um, you know, of course, something that was a real issue with those older guns is that, uh, unlike modern rifles, or, or a lot of modern rimfires, I won't say all of them, but a lot of the modern rimfires are safe to dry fire, whereas the older ones are not. And so, that firing pin, if you dry fire, the firing pin will drive forward enough to hit the, the mouth of the chamber and and uh, ping or dent the mouth of the chamber. And, you know, once that happens, it can become very difficult to not only chamber around, but to 
uh, eject it or extract it because that that sliver of metal is sticking down and it's engraving the case and you see a lot of those but anyway that's that's the first type and the most common vintage rifle that i come across and like i said there's so many models and unfortunately i just don't know them all so josh it's not that i'm not uh not trying to to be as helpful as i can or you know talk as much about it as i can it's just something that i don't um, deal with very often now the second type of rifle that i come across are the ones that um I do see at some of the matches that I shoot in, and these are, uh, in some cases, highly sought after. Uh, I, I do see these retain their value very well. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I say retain their value, these are rifles that, in some cases, you know, cost less than a hundred or maybe a hundred and fifty dollars when they were new, and you know, originally we manufactured and. Now a lot of them will sell for five, six, eight hundred, or a thousand dollars, or in some cases even more than that. But these are primarily your single shots that were target rifles of the day, and these run the gamut from just some of the ones that um, the ones I'm actually going to talk about the most are the ones that I see uh, or have owned myself. Uh, but when I, when I see, when I'm talking about seeing them, I see them at matches. Um, I see them talked about a lot online and, uh, and they're the ones that, like I said, seem to hold their value very well. Uh, they're the ones that uh, a lot of people who are rimfire collectors tend to, um, add to their collection at some point. Uh, these range from on the. Uh, lower cost side, I guess is the right way to say this. I see them, uh, the Kimber Model 82G, uh, A2 Government, is a, a 22 trainer that was uh, used by the military at one point uh, to train uh, train uh, marksmen on, or iron shooters on uh, shooting with irons, and. Um, those are really probably one of the more common ones that you'll come across because the CMP, uh, Civilian Marksmanship Program, they released thousands and thousands of those several years ago to the market. And what's interesting is a lot of those rifles, when they were uh, released and sold by the CMP, a lot of them had actually never been used. Um, but when they were being um sold and and i'm sure there's more to the story but uh when they were being sold and when they were being taken out of the crates um or the packaging of the boxes and things uh, i guess there was someone that um, made them sort of famous by cutting the boxes open with a razor blade or something which left a cut in the left side of the stock up near the action and uh you know those those rifles are very neat guns um actually purchased one several years ago uh thinking hey i've you know i love accurate rifles it just seems like this is something i should have um and partially you know the fact that it was 
so much less than a lot of the other rifles I'm going to talk about made it very appealing to me. Um, as to how it actually shoots, I can't tell you. I had that rifle for several years and never shot the gun. And what 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 happened? Uh, I had the the iron sights because they, they they shipped with iron sights. Uh, I had that. Um, those rifles came with an accessory rail in the uh, stock where you could put a hand stop and different things like that. And um, you know, all in all, just neat rifles. Um, but I never did shoot mine because shortly after I got it, um, or actually in the middle of when I got it, I had just started to shoot a lot of uh, the different types of matches. And uh, because back then NRL 22 wasn't a thing, but the silhouette matches and some of the others that I shoot were. And because of timed events, um, you know, something that was magazine fed, seems like a much better fit to me it's definitely not the case because i do see a lot of people shoot these matches with single shots but in my mind you know that's that would was would have been a handicap if you will all right a little more, more coffee there and um so anyway the kimber 82g it's a very popular one you see them a lot on uh Online, lots of gun forums, um, pretty much guaranteed. Um, the last time I went to a gun show, which it's been several years, but every time I ever went to a gun show, it seemed like those rifles would be there. And depending on where you, um, you know, what condition you find them in and where you find them, I've seen those rifles sell for as little as 350 to $400 with a stock that's in really rough shape all the way up to nearly a thousand dollars for some that are in exceptional shape especially if they have a factory stock that um did not get cut uh so it doesn't have the razor cuts or anything like that in it i was very fortunate with the one that i had found uh it was in perfect condition and um like i said i just never fired it and and really the only reason i don't own the rifle today was I was um, ended up acquiring a couple of other voodoo's and uh, it just felt like I needed to let a few go to help pay for the purchase. Um, another common, uh, actually, let me rephrase that. Not a common one, but a very, very popular uh, single shot that is highly sought after is the Remington Model 40X. Uh, if you're not familiar with the 40X, those were a full-size Model 700 uh, action chambered in 22 long rifle. Primarily the 40X, as I um, with, with what I know of them, 40Xs were produced as a heavy barrel, and they were again. Uh, something to be used as a trainer. Something that would give you a full-size rifle feel. Um, but chambered in 22 long rifle. And those guns are known for being incredibly accurate. And for years have been highly sought after as uh, one that you would see people purchase. 
and um, they would take them out of the woodstocks a lot of times and put them into, you know, some sort of uh, an aftermarket stock or chassis. Uh, I've, I know I've probably seen, gosh, three or four hundred or more through the years at least that um, people have had um, put into, especially McMillan stocks, uh, McMillan, Manners, uh, all the different chassis. I still see a lot of these come up. And every time I look at them, I'm just like, man, you know, I'd love to have one. And, um, and, and to this day, even though personally, I don't enjoy shooting single shots. And, uh, at this time I only have one left. And by the time you read this or hear this, you hopefully will not be mine anymore. But, uh, you know, it's, um, the 40 X is still one that if I came across the right deal, I would absolutely buy just for the history of it. Um, those rifles, I think the, the cheapest one I've personally seen sell, uh, was actually one that I walked into a local gun shop several years ago and I saw this guy, uh, lay a case, a hard case on the counter and he opened it up and I saw this Remington Mall 700 heavy barrel. And I was looking at the, the, uh, the rifle and, and I kept looking at it and, you know, it's what I didn't, didn't know the guy or didn't have anything to do with the conversation. So I was just standing off to the side and I heard him say he was shipping it out that he had sold it online. And at the time I had just seen and been watching the 40 X's sell anywhere from 11 to $1,200. I'd recently seen one that had exceptionally good wood on the stock sell for 1500. And here's this guy shipping one out when I I've never seen one in person at that point, never seen one locally. And this one, according to him, had been purchased by his father and to his knowledge, his dad never shot the rifle. But he thought he might be able to get $500 out of it. So when he stuck it on a gun broker with a reserve or a buy it now price of $800, he was just totally ecstatic that someone had purchased it less than 10 minutes after it was listed on gun broker for the full asking price of $800. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, man, you know, <laughs> I, I would, I would absolutely have paid that uh, in a heartbeat, especially for one that was in this condition. And um, yeah, but unfortunately, like I said, it was already sold and he was just there to ship it out. But in my opinion, uh, from now being able to look at several of these, you know, I, I would still, I would absolutely love to have one. What's interesting is a lot of people started buying the 40Xs um, to do a magazine conversion and I've seen a handful of them, uh, although I've never seen one in person, but I've seen, well, not, not a handful, I've seen more than a handful of the 40X conversions that were done to change them out to be a repeater. And really the, the ones that are the most common that I've seen were actually conversions 
using a magazine that was developed by this guy named Mike Bush. And for those of you guys that don't know, Mike Bush is one of the co-founders of Voodoo Gunworks. And, you know, hey, had it not been for the 40X, who knows? Maybe we would have the Voodoo Gunworks. You know, it's, uh, uh, I, I certainly don't know all the history, but uh, I can tell you that his magazine conversion for the 40Xs, that's what really, I think, sent the price of those rifles skyrocketing. And then a lot of people bought them to convert them and then ended up not even converting them because they shot so well and ended up just buying a Voodoo. And that's what kept the price on those guns so high. Um, now, another single shot that is just a great rifle with a great reputation. It's another Remington. It's a model 540X. And the 540X is another trainer, another positional rifle. Um, those rifles uh, are set up for irons and are great rifles. Uh, they came in a, I think it's an X and an XR maybe model and I, I may be wrong on that but basically there's one for uh that's a, got a full-size stock that's adjustable butt pay, plate um and then there was a a another model where the stock was cut a little shorter and still had the adjustable butt plate it's more for junior shooters um, but just great rifles they have an excellent reputation and like i said um, i have one of those that by the time you hear this, hopefully won't be mine anymore just because I went on a buying spree at one point. I had the 82G. I bought the uh, that one, the 540X. I uh, also had a Soul 150-1, uh, which another great rifle. Um, seems like I had a few others, but I bought all these with the thoughts of shooting irons and <laughs> figured out after buying several of these rifles that I didn't like shooting irons. So <laughs> that was, uh, you know, a very costly lesson and something that, you know, a smarter person would have said, let's make sure that I like shooting this way before I go and spend a fair amount of money on buying you know, several of these rifles. But uh, thankfully, those are in the hands, uh, all of them, except for that 540. They're in the hands of people who are putting them to use and shooting them where they were designed instead of what would probably eventually have happened with me, which is buying scope mounts or having them drilled and tapped for scope mounts. Um, but the 540X, like I said, it's an exceptional gun. Uh, lightweight, easy to maneuver, and uh, you know if you've if you've never had a chance to pick one up, uh, I would recommend it. Not because I'm selling one, but because they do have a great feel and seem like a, a an exceptional rifle. Now, finally, and that, listen, there's there's a ton of, of single shots. Those are just a couple that come to mind. Um, I, another one I will tell you that uh, I've had the chance to shoot a few. Um, but I have never purchased one. Um, so the 
H&R Harrington Richardson Model 12. It's a single shot, essentially a single shot copy of the Winchester Model 52 action. And um, man, those are some super nice rifles. Um, they're big, they're heavy. I think they have either a 26 or a 28 inch barrel. Um, big, heavy wooden stock. And so they're, they're a lot to, to pick up and maneuver, but they are, I think they're a steal and you can find those most of the time on Gunbroker. They sell anywhere from around five to $600. Uh, some will sell for a little more, but, um, they're a neat gun and, uh, the, the, the few that I've been able to shoot were just incredibly accurate. Um, and outside of those, um, the other single shots, the ones that I actually see the most by far at some of the matches that I shoot in are, uh, different variations of the on shoots. And these go all the way from the older models, um, that were imported from Savage in a, gosh, the, I guess the fifties and sixties. A lot of those are called Savage and shoots or Savage dash and shoots. Um, and some of the, most of those uh, seem to be more of a 64 action, um, which is the lighter weight and shoots action. And then you have the, the 54 action and shoots single shots. Um, those there's so many different models. Um, I'm not going to sit here and go through all of them because gosh, we'd be here for an hour just doing all that. But those rifles are outstanding shooters, incredibly accurate. And you'll find those on, I believe, you know, in just about every type of match that you would go to. I've seen a lot of them that were uh, set up for Pinterest. Um, most of them are set up more so for uh, shooting from a, a rest from the bench, but you'll see a lot of them that are shot, um, in bench rest matches. You'll also see a lot of them that are, uh, swapped out into different stocks, more sporter style stocks, things like that. And those rifles, even the ones that were club rifles that were imported from uh, gun clubs in Europe to the U.S. with literally hundreds of thousands of rounds down the barrel. A lot of those still shoot like a house on fire. Just they'll hang with with nearly any production gun made today. Um, so don't discount those if you are looking for a single shot and looking for a vintage rifle. So they can be a great value. Finally those vintage rifles that, um, are incredibly popular. Um, the repeaters, the, the ones that are magazine fed, some of them are, are, uh, more popular than others. And actually, uh, I should, I'm saying magazine fed. This also goes for the tube fed. There's lots of those out there. Um, the thing about some of the magazine fed rifles, is that sometimes the magazines are as hard to find or harder to find than the rifles. So you may buy a rifle for three, four or $500 and you may pay another $150 or more just to buy 
a working magazine because a lot of times the magazines were lost or stolen or they just stopped working. Uh, sometimes it's because they were neglected and would, uh, you know, rust up or something along those lines. But these range anywhere from uh, models made by Springfield to the Winchester Model 52s and all the variations of the 52s, the, the pre, uh, I think they call them the pre-A, the 52, the A, the B, the C, the D, the E. Um, there's so many of them. And uh, I frankly, I can't tell you a lot about the differences. Um, I know I've got some friends and one guy in particular that at some point, um, probably going to have him on the podcast. He is a 52 Winchester collector and someone that can talk about them for hours and really can tell you the, the intricate details between each model and what makes them, you know, one more desirable than the others. Uh, he is the reason that I own a model 52, albeit mine is one that has had um, several modifications done to it which is why I was able to buy it for the price that I bought it at. Um, I couldn't justify spending what most of them run anywhere from, I guess, uh, 800 up. I couldn't justify spending that type of money on an older rifle that I really didn't feel like I was going to shoot very much because of shooting my voodoos, my, my hand shoots and those models. But at the same time, you know, it felt like it would be silly not to own one. But those are highly sought after, as are the Model 75s from Winchester. Um, you know, I mentioned before uh, the Remington 40X. If, if I remember correctly, there was a very, very few of the Winchester, or I'm sorry, the Remington 40X models that were made as factory repeaters uh, at magazine-fed rifles. And if I remember correctly... I think they were sporter models and those are supposed to be highly sought after and you know, easily a $45,000 rifle. So, you know, tons and tons of those out there, but uh, of the, uh, the 52s and, uh, like I said, other, uh, repeaters that you come across. Um, there's just not as many of them that I see, um, mainly because, of the fact that the single shots were more popular because they were more cost effective. And, you know, some of the others that I didn't mention, um, Savage had a ton of single shots that were the Savage models, not the ones that were imported from, from, uh, with Anschutz, uh, Marlin had a bunch. There's, there's just no shortage. Um, you know, the thing about the, the, uh, magazine fed repeaters though i don't see a ton of those that matches although i did uh, shoot in an nrl 22 match earlier this month and a fellow that was there was actually shooting a model 52 and like i said i can't remember which one he had if it was a an a or a b or a c but uh, he he and i were talking and super nice guy Great shooter. He actually won the match, by the way. He won the match, beat uh, uh, a lot of really good shooters. Um, 
and his rifle when he got it i believe he said that it was in terrible condition and so he rebarreled it with a factory winchester barrel um had to put it in a new uh, a different stock that he found because the stock was in terrible condition but the rifle shot exceptionally well and more importantly he shot exceptionally well he actually won the match and the only handicap uh, if you could call that, that with most of these rifles is most of them shipped with either a four or a five round magazine and that can be difficult in a lot of matches when you have at least 10 rounds um, on the stage but i watched him shoot you know five rounds change magazines shoot five rounds and like i said it was no handicap at all to him he won the match so you know there's definitely still room out there for them um and you know another magazine fed model uh, that has been offered in a lot of different variations through the years are the kimber models the 82s that were made by kimber of Oregon and Kimber of America um, and then the Kimber K22s which is made by Kimber of New York those rifles are in my opinion some of the best out there um, I'm fortunate to own a few of the Kimber 82s I've also been fortunate to own a few of the Kimber of New York guns and they look great they shoot great uh, as a matter of fact i've won quite a few matches shooting a kimber svt a short farm target it's a heavy little rifle mine's the k22 so it's the magazine fed uh, kimber new york gun they came with five round magazines uh, set up to shoot optics it's got a really high comb great for shooting offhand uh, silhouette uh, still shoots because it's so heavy and, and compact. Shoots great from a bench. Just a fantastic rifle. Can't say enough good things about them. And like I said, been very fortunate to win several matches shooting that rifle. Um, but there you have it. I know there's a lot of others that are out there. I'm, I'm leaving several out, I'm sure. But Josh, I hope that kind of covers some of the, the vintage models that I'm aware of and know a little bit about. And, you know, as always, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, visit us over at the Rimfire Tactical Facebook group. You can reach out to us at contact rimfiretactical.com and let us know your thoughts. Give us some feedback. Also, wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it's iTunes, uh, Spotify, uh, Podbean, wherever you listen, give us a review. The reviews help the ratings. The farther we move up on the ratings, the easier it is for us to get guests on the podcast, industry folks, things like that. Last but not least, I've mentioned it before, the Rimfire Tactical podcast is brought to you by GetAccuratePayments.com. Those of us that are in the Second Amendment world, we definitely know what it's like to uh, experience difficulties related to uh insurance and banking and things like that because so many companies are not pro second amendment and the credit card processing world trust me a lot of software companies are not second amendment friendly 
at getaccuratepayments.com. They do credit card processing for all types of businesses, not just those in the, in the firearms industry. They're able to, to offer integration with a lot of different software, your shopping carts for e-commerce, point of sale systems, and really any type of mobile processing for gun shows or your service based business. So if you're looking for some options on credit card processing, head on over, let them know that you appreciate their support of the Rimfire Tactical podcast. You can find them at getaccuratepayments.com. All right, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, and for heaven's sake, quit touching your face. Cheers.